Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 26. And I'll be reading from the King James Version. This uh, passage is often led appropriately before uh, the Lord's Supper, and that's the subject uh, of the lesson this morning. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed it, and blessed and brake it, and gave to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. We need to be stacking more stones in the church today. And I mean that collectively as congregations, individually as members. If you trace your way through the Old Testament, you will see that there were occasions when the leaders of the Israelite camp would tell their people, you need to stack some stones here so that you will always remember what took place here. And so that in generations to come, your children and your children's children will ask, why are those stones there? And you'll be able to use that as a visual cue to remind yourself over and over again and to remind them of the importance of what took place there and of the fact that there is a God at work in their lives. This morning, I want, with your cooperation, to figuratively stack some stones right here on the Lord's Supper table. Because the Lord told us, I want you to remember me. And he has told us how that we are to do that. And we have just engaged in the Lord's Supper, which is one of the primary means by which God's people can keep fresh in our minds the importance of Jesus' sacrifice, the love of God, the grace that has been manifested to us in the giving of his Son. You know, there, our culture has many ways to commemorate the life of someone who has passed on. For the private person, a simple tombstone with a name, a date, and perhaps a, an inscription on that tombstone would be a typical commemor- commemoration. For the person who's more public, a monument or a statue could be raised to honor the deceased. Or maybe for the wealthy person, sometimes there's a lectureship that's named after that person or a scholarship that's established. Or maybe even a building that's erected that bears his or her name. And those left behind are normally the ones who get to choose the form of that memorial. We decide, are we going to erect a statue? Are we going to name a scholarship after them? Whatever it is, we're we're the ones who collectively get together and decide what that commemoration is going to be. And that's the usual way that dead are memorialized, at least in our culture. And that's what's unusual, though, is for a person to anticipate his death with enough time to plan his own memorial. And Jesus, of course, is that person. This morning, it's, uh, as I told Mia when I came home from work one day this week, I, I'm feeling a little melancholy because this is the last in my Follow Me series this year. And this, this morning, we're going to be talking about Remember Me. I think that's an appropriate way to end this series Jesus really wanted us to remember him. 
And so this morning, uh, this isn't the last time, obviously, that we'll be talking about Jesus in this church. But it is the last time I will be presenting this series of lessons. And so I, I hope that when we leave here this morning, there will be some stones stacked up. And that each of us will appreciate, at least to a greater degree, how important it is that we always remember what God has done for us. Will you sing that song with me one more time? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Despite the fact that Jesus planned his own memorial, there were no statues, there were no monuments that were erected anywhere to help us do what we have already done this morning as we simply gathered around this table and we collectively remembered what Jesus has done for us and also what he has promised to do for us in the future. We don't even, he didn't even have a, a marked grave of any certainty and, and though the church of course bears its name, it's unlike other institutions in the way that it remembers its founder. Because the memorial that Jesus took great care to plan was a simple, thoughtful, and frequent meal. The biblical record says that while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, offered it to them. And the Bible says they all drank from it. And then he said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, the Bible says they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's Mark chapter 14's account, verses 22 through 26. I think we're all familiar with that simple supper, which Christians, of course, continue to share even today. But the story that we rehearse each week is so familiar to us that sometimes it, it doesn't bring any emotion. It doesn't bring any real thoughtful introspection. For some, it doesn't require any thought at all. It's much like walking or typing. We, the habit becomes routine. The routine has become reflex. I remember talking to a person. In fact, I've had this conversation a number of times in my Christian life. Someone who is not a part of our faith, who was, was incredulous that we would partake of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And, and the questions that they usually ask go in the direction of, doesn't it become trite? Doesn't it become routine for you to observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday? And my response has always been, absolutely not. That to me is like saying, is it too often if I tell my wife every day that I love her? You see, the problem then isn't frequency. The problem is, where, where is my heart? Making sure my heart is in the right place when I do this. And I'm thankful that we get together here as a family of God every Sunday. And remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. 
but also to remember what comes after that sacrifice. The Lord's Supper is not a routine task. I think we all know that, at least at some intuitive level. In fact, the reason for the habit is to keep the memory fresh and to keep the reflections growing. So the memorial is repeated so that our understanding can be deepened every time we observe it. We all learn something, and the impressions on our hearts are deepened by virtue of the fact that we're able to gather around this table and partake of this simple meal. We keep the memory alive because because he is alive, because we serve a risen Savior, and, and our appreciation for that ought to deepen every time we observe this commemoration. And so we encounter Jesus not because he's more present during the supper at any other time, but because we are more aware of his presence maybe then than at any other time. And this frequent suffer becomes meaningful when we decide to rescue from the memory from the files of the routine and say, it's not going to be routine for me. I'm going to examine myself and make sure that I'm doing this in such a way that it would enhance my spiritual growth and development. And it would, again, increase my appreciation for all that God has done for me. Spend just a moment with me this morning, church, and look at the context of the Lord's Supper. I think that will help us to appreciate why the Lord built this memorial on his own behalf and why today we continue to commemorate it doing, using the exact same emblems that he has used as a precedent for us. But today we live in a time of comfort and peace. And when we gather around this table, we're asked to reflect back to a time of violence and death. And it's tempting to see Jesus' last supper as as the calm before the storm. But the real story is very much different. In fact, notice the painful context in which this memorial supper is set. All of these verses I'm going to be sharing with you come from the book of Mark. And, and obviously you could go through uh, uh, Matthew or, or Luke or John and you could find other references. But I just wanted to lock in on the book of Mark. Listen to the, the context of suffering, of, of the violence, of the impending death that takes place in the time before Jesus went to the cross. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. You and I know that when he hung on the cross, was not the first time that those who were responsible for crucifying him had thought about that. They'd been planning for quite some time. Mark 14, verse 8, she poured perfume on my body, Jesus said beforehand, to prepare me for my burial. Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and, and promised to give him money so that he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. That's Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Chapter, eight, uh, chapter 14, verse 18, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, Jesus said. Chapter 14, 27, you will all fall away. Before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Chapter 14, verse 30, when he came back, he again found them sleeping. Chapter 14, verse 40, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Verse 44, same chapter. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Verse 50. Many testified falsely against him. Verse 56. But he, that is Peter, denied him. I do not know or understand what you're talking about. Verse 68. 
of chapter 14. And again he denied him, verse 70. And he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this, this man that you're talking about, verse 71 of Mark chapter 14. So amazingly, it is in this context of desertion, den- denial, and betrayal that Jesus instituted this memorial feast that we continue to observe even in 2019. Planning this memorial was just too important to be derailed by the failure of others. Despite the fact that Peter would deny the Lord three times, Jesus said, I still want you to remember me. What kind of memorial is it? I suggest three things. First of all, it is introspective. It requires us to remember the here and the now. You remember that the story of the Last Supper is sandwiched in between predictions of desertion, denial, and betrayal. And the actual occurrence of desertion, denial, and betrayal. Jesus amazes us by sharing this intimate meal. Usually would be reserved for special friends and family. But this time he is going to share it with the twelve. And he knew what was ahead for them. He knew what was ahead for himself. And yet still he said I want to share this supper with you. The same is true even today. Steve alluded to it in his remarks and in his prayer earlier. Tarnished with today's betrayal, we bring our sinful selves to the supper. When we come in and we gather around this table, we can't leave our failures outside. When we partake of this simple feast, we remember and are reminded of how sinful we really are. We remember what we did yesterday. We remember the words that we were tempted to use on Thursday. We remember the language we did use on Friday. We remember the times when we should have stood courageously for our allegiance and dedication, and yet we did not speak a word. We bring our sinful selves every time we gather around this table. There ought to be some clear and concise introspection every time we partake of the Lord's Supper making ourselves aware of the fact that it is our sins that put Jesus on that old rugged cross that we so often sing about. We can't pretend to leave our sins outside in the parking lot. We bring it to the only one who has an answer to the sin problem in our lives. Actually, sin and betrayal was not just Judas's problem. You may remember that Jesus told his disciples, you will all fall away. He had said to the twelve, that's Mark 14, verse 27. He didn't just say that to Judas. And yet still Judas symbolizes, I think, the sin that's in every heart. In my heart, as well as in your heart. And at the supper, we're called to a heart-searching introspection. No wonder Paul said, so let a man examine himself. So we're not only remembering the now, and we're looking carefully at our own hearts and our own spiritual condition, but also it is a retrospective look that each of us engages in when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We're also remembering the past. You know, human beings forget. We forget names, we forget events, and sometimes we forget promises that we have made. And so it was that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, Luke 22 and verse 19. But the question that we ask when we read those kinds of things is, do what? 
What is it that we're to remember? Why did Jesus want us even today to continue to gather around this table and to do something for us that had no physical repercussions whatsoever? I've never known anyone who came to the church building having missed breakfast on Sunday morning and said, well, after all, we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper later. I'll be filled when I know it, it isn't for our stomachs. It isn't for the physical being. Nobody has ever partaken of the Lord's Supper and came away saying, oh, I'm stuffed. No, no, that's not what it's about. It is spiritual in nature. And we all understand and appreciate that. That's why, first of all, it has the bread. Jesus, the Bible says, first took bread and made it a symbol of his body. A body that would soon be scourged and beaten and abused. A body that would be nailed and bloodied and killed. A body that would be buried and then given life and resurrection. And so when he said, this is my body, Mark 14, 22, what he meant was, this is, this is my person. Today, when we share the bread, we join ourselves to his person. We're not just joining ourselves to him, to his physical body, but to his cause and to his values. We're saying, I'm buying in to everything that Jesus stood for. And that I will stand with him and I will walk with him for the rest of my days. No wonder the bread is such a fitting representation of the body of Jesus Christ. But also, there's the fruit of the vine. The Bible says next Jesus took the fruit of the vine and made it a symbol of his blood. The blood that would cover his head and his hands and his feet and his side and his back. Every part of Jesus was covered by that crimson stain, he said, this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many, Mark 14 verse 24 says. And today when we share the cup, we include ourselves in that many for which Jesus said he died. We look back and we thank God once again for the blood that daily purifies us of our guilt. Let me add two other factors that you may not have added to the list. I realize that those are the only two emblems that are to be a part of the Lord's Supper, to be a part of this commemorative feast. But you'll also appreciate, if you've read the first half of John chapter 13, that before Jesus died, there was a towel and a basin that came into play. The Bible says that Jesus in his last supper with those men who were most important to him, that had followed him through thick and thin, through every walk of his ministry for the last three and a half years. The Bible says that Jesus took a towel and a basin of water, and it's at this point that we can begin to see Jesus' priorities. He must have given deep thought to, as to what his final message to the twelve would be. I've preached on this subject before, and I've elucidated on what could have been, and I won't go through all of that today, but I will mention this. When we're trying to say goodbye to someone, usually we, we put something in writing. We may write them a note. We might write a card and put it in the mail and send it to them and tell them before they pass from this life how important they were. Maybe we hold their hand in a, as they're lying in a hospital bed and we reaffirm how much we love that person and how deeply they have moved us and, and how they have influenced our lives in such a powerful way. But we saw none of that. When Jesus met with that last supper with his disciples. All the things that Jesus could have done. He could have had little mementos that he handed out to each of the twelve saying, I want you to use this and carry it with you and maybe put it on a piece of leather around your neck. So that whenever you see that, you'll remember he did not do any of those things. I know he had to have given deep thought to what it was that he was going to do and say in his last supper. So when the disciples saw Jesus at work, they saw him in the role 
of a servant. The last image that they had of the Messiah was him getting down on his knees with a towel wrapped around his waist, washing between their dirty toes. They saw the Son of God who came in the flesh as a servant on his knees. And so I think retrospection is a time to thank God for the broken body, for the shed blood, and also for the forgiven life. But retrospection is also a time to decide again to follow Jesus in his service. It isn't just to gather around this table and reflect back on the old rugged cross. That's the central picture, no doubt about it. But it also helps us in our appreciation of the fact that we're called to do what Jesus did. After all, John 13, 15 does say that when Jesus washed their feet, then his next comment to those apostles was... I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. That is, I want you to go out and to serve mankind the way you just saw me do it. Thirdly, it is prospective. We remember the future. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says this about the, the Lord's Supper. For whenever, Jesus said, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is sometimes called the the already but not yet passage. The Lord is coming again. And when we observe the supper, we're also remembering the future. The pragmatic part of it says, how in the world can you remember forward? Well, we have difficulty because we think chronologically about a God who cannot be described with chronology. He is beyond chronology. He created time. He is above time. He's beyond time. He's not confined to calendars and clocks. You know, the death of a person usually puts that person in the past. Almost immediately after we hear the death of a person, we began to refer to them in the past tense. Here's what he said, not what he's saying. Here's what he did, not what he's doing. But the resurrection has brought Jesus dramatically into the future. The world says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But at the supper, we say, we we eat and drink and remember, for tomorrow we will live. And what a difference that is. And so we look inward, we look backward, and we also look forward. But still, one final question. Why a meal as a memorial? Why didn't Jesus just build a monument of stone? Why is a meal an appropriate memorial to our Lord? I think there's some good reasons. Let me enumerate them quickly. Number one, because in the supper we encounter a risen Lord. We've already touched on that some, but I want us to think about it for just another moment. Monuments are usually built by people who are left behind at the time of someone's death. We understand that. There's the Jefferson Memorial, the Washington Memorial, there's the Lincoln Memorial. There are people who will travel to Washington, D.C. these days just to see memorials and to be reminded of things that were significant in the history of our great country. Who built these memorials? Well, they were built by those who were left behind after these men died. We cannot go to a marked grave today and worship Jesus because he's not in a grave. He is risen. Second, in the supper, we encounter one another. That is, there is a reason why God has called upon us to engage in this supper together, collectively, as God's family. We share this experience as Christians. 
So when we eat the supper, we're not only in a vertical relationship with the Lord, we're also in a horizontal relationship with one another. We don't eat alone. And there's a reason, biblically, I think, why we do this together. This is why Paul rebuked the Corinthian Christians for the way that they were observing the Lord's Supper. One of the many problems that Paul addressed in his first letter to the Corinthians was their abuse of the Lord's Supper. And here's what he said about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to begin with verse 17 and skip around a little bit, but you'll get the, the, the central thought. I have no praise, Paul writes to those Corinthians, for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. There's the problem in terms of motivation. As you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. Anyone who eats and drinks, watch this. Anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. The term body is used 23 times in 1 Corinthians chapters 10, 11, and 12. The vast majority of those times the word body is used to refer to the church of our Lord. In fact, in his warning against idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, Paul uses the word body in a double sense. He uses it in more than one way, referring to both the physical body of Jesus, but also the spiritual body, his church. Listen to what he says. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. There it is, both a spiritual and a physical sense. And so in the supper of our Lord, we should recognize we should discern and we should comprehend that we are in a relationship with all the other members of Christ's spiritual body. We eat this meal together for a reason. The memory of that Last Supper brings to mind the balance in the life of Jesus. In the balance of the bread and the fruit of the vine, the towel and the basin, worship and service. And when he died, he, he was given no marble statue. There was no special sculpture, not even an epitaph. Only that mocking inscription placed above his head on the cross that bore the so-called charge against him, Jesus, King of the Jews. And at the time, it seemed that few would either care or ever remember that event again. I'm sure you thought about that. When Jesus died, there were those who thought, this is the end of it. We'll never hear of this troublemaker again. And even his disciples, having thought that Jesus came with political aspirations, recognized that he did not restore power to Jerusalem. He did not sit on David's throne as they supposed he would. No wonder when Peter opens his first letter, he begins in the first four verses by saying, it was the resurrection from the dead that made our hopes alive again. Jesus has risen from the dead. And that makes what we do on Sunday morning all the more important. While people may have then asked the question, will we ever remember what Jesus did on this old rugged cross? You and I know that for 2,000 years, literally millions of people have gathered regularly to observe this simple command to just remember me. And you and I can do no less. Dr. W.A. Griswell served for many years as a preacher in a church in, in Dallas. 
He was once invited into the palatial home of one of his wealthier members. As they stood in that beautiful walnut-paneled library, Griswell said that as he looked around, he saw an oval picture on one of the walls of an old-fashioned girl. The host, noticing that he noticed the picture, pointed to that picture and said, That's my mother. And then with tears in his eyes, he continued. He said, I never saw her. She died as she was giving birth to me. And someday when I get to heaven, after I see my Savior, I want the first face that I see to be the face of my angel mother. Griswell later wrote about that experience. He said, when I was standing there with that man, I could have exclaimed, that's your mother? That's nothing but a piece of paper and cardboard covered with ink. But I did nothing of the kind, Griswell writes, because I knew exactly what he meant. The picture represented his angel mother. That's what he meant. I never saw her, but someday in heaven, I'll see her face to face. And I will love her aboundingly for the life that she gave for me. Griswell then continued and concluded, it's exactly the same with our Lord Jesus Christ. These emblems are his body and his blood, and it pictures our lovely Savior until that beautiful day in heaven when we see him face to face. And we thank him for giving his life for us. Remember me. Never, ever forget our Savior. Leave this place determined that you're going to live for him. Dedicate the essence of your life to him. Let that be your magnificent obsession. And someday we'll see him again. And we'll praise him forever. When we gather around this table, we ought to be looking inward. Examining ourselves, we ought to be looking backward. Thinking to the cross that Jesus died upon. We ought to be looking upward, thanking God for the grace that made that sacrifice possible. But most of all, we ought to leave the University Church of Christ on this beautiful Sunday morning looking ahead to the resurrection of our Lord. I hope you'll be there. Every one of us will. And I hope that you'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. If you're not a part of his kingdom this morning, that's a part of the deal. That's a part of the package that allows us to someday live with him in eternity. You turn your back on sin and repentance, confess Jesus as God's son, and you're baptized in his blood to let that blood cleanse all of your sins. And you leave this place this morning heaven bound while we stand and while we sing.